Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Friday, June 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The number of monkeypox cases keeps rising, and some changes to guidance from the CDC is causing confusion. Cases are still very low overall, and prolonged, close contact is needed to contract the virus, but it can be airborne too. The CDC recently deleted their guidance for travelers to wear masks to protect themselves because they say it also caused confusion. Apoorva Mondavilli, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for what to know about monkeypox. Next, when is a bumblebee a fish? when a unanimous ruling by a California state appeals court deems it so. Public interest groups had asked the state to include four types of bumblebees to the list of endangered species. Because the legal definition of a fish was vague and it had been used to include other animals in separate instances, the bee was added to that list. Matt Grossman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the legal wrangling it took to get there. Finally, two senators this week proposed an industry-friendly cryptocurrency bill. The legislation would create a regulatory framework for the crypto markets, classify the majority of digital assets as commodities, and empower the Commodity Futures Trading Commission to regulate the industry. Paul Kiernan, financial regulations reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what's in the bill. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Monkeypox is a virus that's similar to smallpox, and even though that sounds frightening, it's much less contagious and importantly, much less likely to cause serious disease. Joining us now is Apoorva Mondavilli, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Apoorva. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about monkeypox. Right now, what we're seeing is a little bit of changing guidance from the CDC. You know, last week, they were saying, uh, wear a mask, wear a mask uh, if you're around somebody with monkeypox. Now, to be clear, right, we still don't have very many cases throughout the world. There's just kind of this increasing little drumbeat that we're hearing about of cases here and there. But still, you know, there's cause for concern. And we were hearing from the CDC, if you're around somebody, wear a mask. Well, they changed that recommendation uh, on Monday. And uh, they're just saying they don't want to cause confusion, but it is possible to spread it through aerosols and, uh, you know, similar to the coronavirus, although we don't think it is as virulent as the other one. So, uh, Purva, what what are we seeing with all this confusion? As you said, we don't have that many cases of monkeypox yet. You know, there are about a thousand overall across the world and another thousand or so that are being investigated. 
And the guidance that the CDC had originally said to wear a mask was mostly for people who would be in close contact with those patients. So people who live in the same house or healthcare workers who are in close contact with them. And I think that's appropriate because what I've learned from my reporting is that, you know, the virus can travel through air, but over short distances. So, you know, for somebody who's living in the same household, that's a problem or, or a healthcare worker who's treating a patient in the same room. But you don't have to worry about it if you're just coming into very you know, short, casual contact with someone walking by them, etc. So I think it made sense for the CDC to recommend what it did before. The confusion seemed to begin when they added the recommendation for a mask for travelers who are going to countries where the virus is circulating. And I think they got a lot of backlash for that, which is why they took it down. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Porva, we've talked about it before, you know, the changing guidelines from the CDC when it came to the coronavirus, to the pandemic. And, you know, they didn't have a really good track record because, you know, all that whiplash of changing guidelines really started making people distrust what they were saying. They said, well, if they don't know what they're doing, I'm not going to wear a mask at all. You know, it caused all this so much confusion that it really made any more guidance, any upcoming guidance, hard to swallow. And so now we're back in the same position. And, you know, but I, I do understand it, right? They want to be as careful and clear as possible. You really do need that close, sustained contact with somebody to really come down with this. And it's, you know, it's correct that they are being cautious about what they tell people. They, they do want to try to not panic people. But as you pointed out, when they say something, and then they take it back and they say something else. It is incredibly confusing for people. It makes it very hard for people to know what to believe. And with COVID, we saw that initially they said the virus doesn't spread by air at all. They didn't even say the word airborne until you know May 2021. So when we're coming from that kind of history, I think the agency does probably need to be more careful about exactly what they say, when they say it, how they say it, and then not taking it back if they have said it. We haven't covered monkeypox too much on the podcast just yet. Uh, so, Apoorva, if you could tell us, how does this behave? How does it manifest? What should people look out for when we're hearing about this? So monkeypox is very closely related to smallpox, which we haven't seen in decades. You know, a lot of doctors and a lot of patients don't really know what to look for. But there are some things that are very distinctive about this particular virus and this particular disease. So it starts out with sometimes with just respiratory symptoms, you know, sore throat and things like that. But then you also develop this rash that starts, you know, on your the palms of your hand and the, and the soles of your feet, which are unusual places for a rash to show up pretty early on. And then the rash spreads all over the body. It becomes raised. Then you start to see those blisters like you probably have seen in photos of smallpox that fill with pus. And that's really when people seem to be very contagious is when the secretions from those blisters, when the pus leaks out and, and contaminates bedsheets or linens and other people touch them or you touch the skin of somebody who's infected, that's how the virus can spread. So I think it is very important for people to know that this is something that's going around so they can go to a doctor if they start to see symptoms. And it's especially important for people who may have traveled to countries where we have been hearing about cases. The U.S. is actually now up to 35 cases in 14 states and, and the District of Columbia. And I think we should all expect to see those numbers go up significantly over the next few weeks. We'll probably hear about cases from every state. So, you know, I wouldn't panic if you start to see the numbers go up right. because I think that's a natural consequence of people becoming more aware of the virus and of doctors being more aware of what they're seeing. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions with all of this. You made note in the article, we're still 
seeing relatively mild cases in all of this, which is good, obviously. Scientists are also, you know, there was a time where they were saying it can be transmitted through sex. I mean, that would make sense, you know, prolonged exposure. But, you know, we don't know if it's transmitted in semen or other secretions and whatnot. So there's still a lot yet to be known about what's going on with this current outbreak. There's tons we don't know. You know, unfortunately, because this virus was mostly in Africa before this current outbreak, it just really wasn't studied very much. And so we don't know, you know, really basic things like can somebody spread the virus when they don't have symptoms? We think that's the case. We think that people are only contagious when they are symptomatic. But we don't know that for sure. And as you pointed out, we don't know if somebody's getting infected through sex because it's in semen and vaginal secretions or it's just close contact. We don't know, you know, how often people can transmit it, like the exact what we used to call the, the reproductive number, how many people can each person infect. There are just a lot of unknowns with this virus that I think scientists are now realizing we do have to know the answers to because this virus is probably going to be around for quite a while. Apoorva Mondavili, reporter at the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And of course, shrimp and clams and lobsters are all invertebrates. But by extension, the court last week said actually any invertebrates can be fish, even if they're not underwater. So that's how you got this really strange result that bumblebees are fish. Joining us now is Matt Grossman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. Your article caught my eye with its uh, headline. It starts off kind of like a bad joke. When is a bumblebee a fish? But it's an interesting story that has to do with uh, legal definitions. And uh, obviously this happened in California, so take that for what it is. But there was a challenge put to the courts. Basically, um, some uh, conservationists wanted to classify four types of bumblebees on the endangered species list. And there was all sorts of pushback to it. But uh, the way they came up with being able to do it was to classify them as a fish. The law that governs all this is uh, is very old, and they had to do some legal wrangling to get it to this point. So, Matt, uh, help us walk through what we're seeing with this story. Basically, California law lets the uh, state government protect certain kinds of animals as endangered, you know, when the populations are low. That just allows the state to keep people away from habitats and make the animals have some space to thrive. California wrote the law that defines this back in 1970, and the law listed certain kinds of animals that were eligible. It said you could protect fish or mammals or amphibians or reptiles, uh, and it pretty much left things there. Now, over the years, of course, more and more animals uh, were moving into that endangered territory. And so the state government started to add things that sort of seemed like fish at first glance. Things like shrimp and crayfish and and things like that were added to the definition. And basically, uh, courts had looked at the way the law was written and said, "Okay, well, when they wrote this law, when they said fish, uh, it seems like they probably meant also some other things that live in the water and that are invertebrates and and don't have a spine and so on. And and that's how these laws evolve over the years, right? Uh, The the definition kind of evolves through precedent and through uh, an examination of what the legislatures thought that they were trying to do when they wrote the law. And so over the years, court said, uh, fine, shrimp count as fish in this case, or crayfish count as fish. Eventually, it evolved to the point where it started to look like just about any invertebrate could count as fish. And of course, shrimp and clams and lobsters are all invertebrates. 
But by extension, the court last week said actually any invertebrates can be fish, even if they're not underwater. So that's how you got this really strange result that bumblebees are fish. And some of the biggest pushback in all of this was coming from California almond farmers. You know, they need bees to pollinate all the acres of trees so that they can get the almonds and everything. But, you know, if you start classifying these bumblebees as endangered species, then it makes them more difficult for them to work around them. Yeah, that's right. So almond farmers and and other groups of farmers as well were really concerned. And I think um, you can sort of understand their concerns like this. You know, if there's a certain type of squirrel or a certain type of lizard that is endangered, you might have a good idea of the kinds of habitats that you want to avoid and, you know, let those animals have their space and, you know, we're going to farm over here on our land. With something like a bee, um, I think the farmers are really concerned with these protections in place. It's just going to make life really difficult because, you know, as anybody knows, bees, you know, be anywhere you can find them in cities, you can find them in in rural areas, and it's kind of very hard to keep track of, of where they're coming from. And and they're they're so small uh, that you know unless you're an expert it's it's pretty hard to see right. a bee and to know whether it's the type that you're supposed to be protecting or or that uh, is not one of the endangered species. So I think farmers were just really concerned about some of the implications. So this was a unanimous ruling by the state uh, appeals court. Is this done? Is are, are are we classifying them as the fish so that they can be on the endangered species list, or is there any legal recourse that's left in this case? Yeah, so for now, bees are fish. That's the official outcome. The Almond Board, which was one of the leading plaintiffs in the case, they told me that they're going to consult with the other parties in the case, decide if they want to appeal it. So they could appeal it to the state Supreme Court in California, and then that court could either choose to reconsider the case or it it could just go back to the the lower court's ruling and and say this is final. And in that case, bees would be fish uh, until the the legislature changed the law, at least. Wow. A very interesting story, and I appreciate the little tidbits that you put at the end of your article talking about these legal codes having a hard time classifying with with certain words, like in California, hot dogs technically classify as a sandwich. In New York, they consider burritos a sandwich. I think they cleared some of the words to be sandwich-like. <laughs> you know, So there's always has to be some of this uh, uh, wrangling with with the words. When you talk casually with someone in everyday life, uh, it's very easy to just kind of use context and and common sense to know what the other person is talking about. But I guess in a court when you're making laws and and there are potential crimes or statutes involved, it's very important to be really precise. And so, uh, you know, that's that's where all the lawyers get involved. Right. Matt Grossman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The most important goal of this legislation was to create safety and soundness, to create consumer protections, transparency, accountability, and certainty. Uh, when we met with industry um, leaders, they basically said, we just need to know what the rules of the road are. Joining us now is Paul Kiernan, financial regulations reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thank you, Oscar. Well, let's talk about some interesting movement on the cryptocurrency side of things. The uh, industry, the market, whatever you want to call it, has been worried about oncoming regulations for the longest time. It's really been the Wild West, as we always talk about it when things are happening in cryptocurrency and we're talking about NFTs and scams and all sorts of stuff. So we knew that some type of regulation would be coming for some time. And right now what we're seeing is some legislation introduced on Tuesday by a pair of senators, Senators Cynthia Loomis and Kirsten Gillibrand, that would kind of create some uh, regulatory framework for the crypto markets. It's called the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. So, Paul, what are we seeing with this? Because I know a lot of people in the crypto market are, are looking to see what's coming their way. You know, as you mentioned, cryptocurrency markets today are pretty much unregulated. And this bill tries to change that. It tries to sort of lay the foundations or set the groundwork for future discussions. Not many people in Congress expect it to pass, by the way, but you know, it, it's a couple of senators laying down a marker. And so what it does is it, 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 would, it would sort of create this regulatory framework, as it says, mostly by changing existing laws rather than enforcing them. So the biggest changes would be to banking laws, the tax code, and probably most importantly, the uh, securities laws. This would classify the majority of digital assets as commodities, and it would be regulated by a different part of the government there. So some that I guess a lot of people don't even know would exist, right? Yeah, what it does is it, it creates a much bigger role for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission which is a regulator of derivatives. The CFTC, as it's known, actually does not have current authority to regulate markets for commodities like gold or wheat. It regulates the derivatives of those commodities. And so for cryptocurrencies, the Lemus-Gillibrand bill would give the CFTC that authority. Under current laws, most, if not all, cryptocurrencies look a lot like securities which is a category of assets that includes stocks and bonds. 
rather than tangible things like houses, cars, or commodities, coffee beans, or gold. You can think of securities as basically hopes and dreams. And (laughs) the way things work now is if you raise money from public investors by selling them nothing but hopes and dreams, you know, maybe it used to be a piece of paper, a certificate that said you own stock. Now it's totally digital. But if you're selling people hopes and dreams of future profits based on your hard work or your company's work, then you need to disclose a lot of information with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, in standardized filings. So the most important thing that this bill does is it sort of removes from the Securities and Exchange Commission's jurisdiction a lot of the cryptocurrency market and basically makes it a little bit easier for people to sell you hopes and dreams without providing you the same disclosures that, you know, a public company does. A lot of what they were trying to do in this bill is at least define what digital assets were, what virtual currencies were. The aim of it is to give investors some type of protection, but they did want to largely leave it alone. So it kind of operates in the same way still. So, I mean, there's a lot to balance. So I guess to your point, right, that's why A lot of this was changing existing laws and existing definitions just to allow for this market to exist. It's all about the definitions in the crypto world. You know, if a cryptocurrency is a security right now, it it faces a pretty rigorous regulatory regime that tech entrepreneurs really don't want to deal with and, and say they can't deal with. If something is a commodity, then there's not really any oversight, you just can't commit fraud. But it's also hard for the CFTC to necessarily spot fraud in a market that it doesn't have authority to oversee as a routine matter. So yeah, it's it's really all about the definitions. And what critics will say is the more specific you get with a definition, the easier you make it for people to say they're doing something slightly different from that definition is that they don't have to comply. One example of this in the bill is it it creates a clear definition for a cryptocurrency broker, which is a term that was introduced in the infrastructure package last year and a provision that requires cryptocurrency brokers to file tax forms with the IRS. Basically, the idea was if you have an account at a crypto exchange like Coinbase, Coinbase, has to give you a 1099 form, just like your broker or your bank would give you. The crypto industry you know, was worried that the term broker might be too all-encompassing, and so they've been lobbying really hard for the past nine months or so to create you know, a really clear definition. But there's trade-offs with all this. Paul Kiernan, financial regulations reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. 
like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.